we ask one simple question. And based on the answer to that question, we're able to say whether it's a brand that you love or that's only resonant or that's relevant or that's irrelevant or non-existent. And the question is very simple. If this brand disappeared tomorrow, how would you feel? The Beatles told us that all you need is love. And Howard Tiersky says the same thing. But he's talking about brands, not the whole of human existence. Howard is the CEO of From, the digital transformation agency. And he's worked with brands from places like Mattel, Barnes & Noble, Mall of America, NBC, Avis, and more. He partners closely with them to transform, to compete and win in a new digital world. And they succeed by getting customers to love the brands and everything they offer. Whether you're a shiny new e-commerce startup or a legacy brand with decades of history behind you, Getting a consumer to actually love you is a multi-step process that's getting harder and harder as the digital landscape evolves. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, we dig into what the pyramid of brand love looks like and how companies should be working to climb their way to the top. And what was interesting about this pyramid is that every brand can win if they're going about it the right way. And I even poked a bit. I was like, hey, Howard, how will I feel that love towards my insurance company? What about my healthcare company? I definitely don't feel brand love towards them right now. But Howard assured me that every brand can get there if they do it correctly. Plus, he revealed the biggest mistakes he sees companies making that causes potential customers to shop elsewhere. And he gave strategies to rectify the situation and improve that bottom line. Enjoy the episode with Howard Tiersky. Hey everyone, it is Stephanie. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to our weekly e-commerce newsletter at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. It's amazing. It's great. You will learn a lot of good things. Go subscribe. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerceinsights. That's sfdc.co slash commerceinsights, one word. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at Mission.org. Today on the show, I'm chatting with Howard Tiersky, the CEO of From, the Digital Transformation Agency and the author of the Wall Street Journal bestselling book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance. Did I do that justice, Howard? Perfect, Stephanie. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So I wanted to start with something that we were chatting with a little bit before this, that you are uh, your whole company is about reverse engineering love, which I actually really like that saying, and I think I'm going to start using it in my personal life now. But I want to <laughs> kind of start there to describe, you know, what is from and why did you... Uh, Why'd you say that? Yeah, sure. Well, what From is, is a kind of a combination between a consulting firm and a digital agency. We work with large brands like Avis, AAA, 
NBC Universal, um, Airbus. And our mission is to help them create a better customer experience that ultimately generates more customer love. Because in our experience, the companies that have customers that feel passionately about them, that feel appreciated by them and appreciate those brands, those are the brands that do the best in the marketplace by all the most common measures of business success, like revenue growth, profitability, and share price. Awesome. And a lot of the brands that you're working with, they've been around for a long time. I mean, I was looking at uh, let's see. Some of, you said Airbus, Barnes and Noble, Facebook, Verizon, yep. Spotify, Amazon, and I think I even saw it was like American Girl, which I used to have mm-hmm. back in the day. I'm like, it seems like you cater towards the brands that have been here for a while and are now kind of seeking help on like how to get to that next level, how to find new customers. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we have worked with some, you know, what you might call sort of pure digital brands like Amazon and Spotify and different things. But the majority of what we do is really working with great classic brands that are faced with a real challenge because they need to transform to be relevant in a a new age. And particularly when a company is large and has been around for a long time, that's not an easy thing to do. And so this is really our area of expertise is how do you everything from the vision and the design concept of a future customer journey to dealing with the politics and resistance to change that you find in most large organizations. Yep. So when you're initially approaching some of these brands, I mean, how do you even go about finding out what the issues are? Because especially with a company of, you know, the size, it seems hard to go in and be like, there's probably a thousand things going wrong or everything feels like a fire in a larger company. Like, how do you start pinpointing you know, here's some of the things that are maybe not up to par right now and that we need to start evolving. And here's the game plan going forward. Yeah, sure. Well, the good news is most companies ultimately want the same things. They want more customers. They want more revenue. They want increased profitability. They want increased share price. So at the very top level, it's usually not too hard to figure out what the company's after. And one of my fundamental philosophies of everything I've done in business for 25 years is this idea that most business value is derived by influencing human behavior. If you can get people, people like customers, employees, shareholders, if you can get them to do what you want them to do, you're going to have a great business. And if you aren't able to get, for example, your customers to do what you want them to do, then you're probably going to be in big trouble, no matter what ERP system you've implemented or what other kinds of things you may be doing. You know, the, the first question is, all right, you want more customers, you want more revenue, you want more profitability, great. What behaviors? do you need by customers, employees, et cetera, in order to get that business outcome? And you know, in my book, I talk about many of the most common behaviors, but you can imagine what they are, getting customers to buy more, to buy more frequently, to, uh, to, to uh, upsell to more expensive products, to refer you to their friends. And also there's some behaviors that are sort of value-destroying behaviors. For example, customers calling you on the phone every day and spending hours with your support desk getting help. And so uh, getting clear on, okay, well, if we can drive these behaviors, then that equates to business success. And then from there, the question is, all right, well, hmm, what drives behavior? I mean, how do you get people to do what you want them to do? And the answer is their thoughts and feelings. People behave in a certain way because of their thoughts and feelings. And then lastly, the question is, all right, well, how do we control people's thoughts and feelings? Where do those come from? And the answer is from their experiences. Your thoughts and feelings come from your experiences. So our job is to help conceive what would be the next generation set of experiences, a customer journey that will drive the thoughts and feelings that will drive the behavior that equate to business results. So 
very often it's research, doing a lot of ethnography, task analysis, different types, interviews, surveys, looking at existing data, for example, funnels on sites, things like that, to understand, well, how, to what degree are these things happening today? Because of course, no doubt, there's some degree of success in almost any business we go to, often a great deal of success. And what's holding back the increase in that? For every customer that buys, there's a bunch that don't buy. Why not? For every customer that buys at level A and never comes back, you know, why don't they come back, et cetera? So once we understand those things, then it's just a question of figuring out, well, okay, how do you start to remove those barriers? Are we confusing them? Are we frustrating them? Are we annoying them? Uh, are we just not offering a compelling enough value proposition, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. Are there any themes when it comes to the barriers where you're like, you know, within all these brands, we have seen this come up time and time again, because maybe they have not thought digitally first, because there are a similar theme around, you know, customer barriers to buying? Yeah, yeah. There are a number of very common themes. That's really a great question, actually. I would say one common theme is failing to make it really clear, really fast, exactly what you can do for somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, anytime a customer is coming to you, they probably don't care much about you. That's just the way it is. Maybe they do if you've already inspired customer love. People really care about Apple. They really care about, you know, the 49ers. They really care about, you know, I don't know, Aeropostal or some, some, some fashion brand. Maybe they, they, they care about Rolex. But those are a very small percentage of brands that have inspired customer love. Mm-hmm. But before you get to that point, most of the customers that come to you, they really only care about themselves. What is it that they're trying? They're there to solve some kind of problem, right? Their kid is having a birthday party and they need to find an entertainer or they, their car is broken down and they need to get it fixed or whatever. So how quickly do you make it really clear what you offer them? And it's, it's fascinating to me how often brands don't do that clearly. They have different messages. They just, they make it too hard for someone to really answer the question, can you help me solve my problem right now? And because the internet is this environment where it's so easy to just go back to Google, go to another website, you know, it's like when you walk into a store, if you don't get clarity within the first 10 seconds that they're going to have what you need, the switching cost of getting in your car and driving to another store is at least a little bit high. But when you're on the internet, the switching cost is zero or so close to zero might as well be. So that means you've got to make sure someone understands right away. You have, they have a high probability of you being a solution to what it is that they need. Yep. So I think that's one thing. And, you know, if I were to just mention one more, it's just making it easy for people to transact. Sometimes I like to think of e-commerce as being basically about two things, persuasion and transaction. First, you got to get them to decide yes on whatever it is you want them to do. And then you've got to get from there to the point that you have your, their money in your Stripe account or whatever, And not screw it up along the way. And how many times, Stephanie, how many times have you gone on a website and gone, I want to buy this thing and then started the process of checking out, but for one reason or another, you never wound up buying. Or you go back to your cart like a day later and you're like, why is my stuff not in there anymore? Why don't you just save that for a little bit? I'm ready to buy, but now I give up. I give up easily though with that kind of stuff. (laughs) And there's so many things that can confuse somebody about Mm -hmm. the checkout process, about the sales tax calculation, about the terms and conditions, about I mean, it's about the the promo code. Why didn't the promo code work? So just really getting compulsive about asking what is everything that holds people back? How can I make sure that in addition to doing my very best to persuade people that they should say yes to whatever I'm offering, 
that I lose none of them between their intention and the completion of the transaction. And so we do a lot of analysis and research to try to understand how many people are you really losing in that process? And of course, most people do that, right? They study abandoned shopping carts, things like that. So mm-hmm. most people have a fairly high percentage of people, but of course, not every abandoned shopping cart was somebody who had an intention to buy. Some mm-hmm. aren't, right? There's various reasons people might be putting things in their shopping carts, but what percentage of those people are you losing? And then again, it goes back to what I said before, what's holding them back? What is happening to stop them from completing what was their intention? And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll give you one tiny example. My company is from digital. Our domain is from dot digital. My email address is ends in an at from dot digital. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of an uncommon first level domain, right? Or yep. many more addresses end in dot com. And I would say a good 25% of e-commerce sites, when I check out, if I have to enter my email address, tell me that my email is invalid. Mm. It's not. Yeah. And you know, I have a solution to that. I don't always abandon because I have some other Gmail address. I'll give them something else. But um, these little problems along the way can very often add up. You know, the analogy I like to use sometimes is it's like if I had taped an extension cord across a hallway, let's say I was setting up a Christmas tree and I just had to run an extension cord across the hallway and I duct taped it down. So hopefully no one would trip on it. You know, 50 people might just walk by and step over that duct tape just fine and 60 people and 70 people, but eventually maybe it's the hundredth person, they trip on that mm-hmm. tape down duct tape cord. And then another 50, hundred people go by and then another person trips. It's a very small percentage of people. The vast majority of people deal with it just fine. But if you're running a billion dollar e-commerce site and 1% of your customers are getting caught up by something like that and not purchasing, you know, how do you feel about giving up 1% of your revenue? And for some of our clients, the answer is that 1% is a lot of money. And then if you have six, eight, 12, 15 things along these lines that don't affect everybody, but affect a few people, and you start to remove those obstacles, all of a sudden you unlock a whole bunch more sales. And that's, that's the optimization side of, you know, if you will, digital transformation. Mm-hmm. And then of course, there's more of a envisioning a, a dramatically different journey. But I think so often, and I guess this is my long answer to your question about what are the common themes one of the common themes I see is the lack of what I call hygiene in e-commerce experiences. And by hygiene, I mean, most digital experiences are being constantly adjusted, tweaked, changed. And of course, browsers are changing and iOS operating systems are changing. And unless you're continuously looking through that saying, have I unintentionally planted a confusion bomb somewhere? Have I added a new feature, but it has a label or it has a button that distracts from my main button or whatever? I've I've just added a cool new feature, but it pushed down something on the page. And now my checkout button is below the fold or whatever it might be. Unless you're continuously looking for those problems, they'll creep in like weeds and they'll pull down your conversion. And that hygiene process is something that I find as a common theme. Many of the largest brands in the world fail to do often enough. Yeah. Oh, that's good. So, I mean, how do you go about identifying, I guess, more like behavioral issues or how people are actually thinking? I mean, it's one thing to solve the tech and the UI aspect of it, you know, make it easy to check out. But what about trying to figure out like going deeper with the customer to really understand why didn't you check out? Why didn't you follow through if everything else is there tech wise? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I go into in some depth in my book is how to do customer research. Mm -hmm. And actually, uh, because at a certain point, we had to start taking stuff out of the book because it was so crazy long. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were afraid if someone would drop it on their toe, they would injure themselves and we'd have a lawsuit on our hands for publishing such a long book. So we started to put stuff on the supplemental website. So mm-hmm. I actually published 
for people who buy the book, an additional PDF and a bunch of videos and all kinds of stuff. And the reason I mentioned all that is because researching customers to really understand them is foundational to being able to do all the things I'm talking about. You can't guess, and you probably can't figure it out even by looking at the site. I mean, you can look at a site and sometimes see some things that are probably problematic. And I do that all the time, but to really know you use various types of customer research, such as bringing customers into uh, an office or a lab or on zoom Mm -hmm. and giving them tasks and saying, okay, great. Go on my e-commerce site. Here's the story. You know, your aunt's birthday's coming up. She's 62 years old. You need to find her president. Her birthday's in two days. You need to make sure you can get it to her in time. And, and then you observe how that person uses that website. And as they do, you, you can ask them questions or we like to ask people to actually speak out loud, mm-hmm. kind of verbalize their stream of conscious thoughts. And of course you record it and you, you're studying and understanding, okay, well, what's easy, what's problematic, what's confusing, what's frustrating. And you can learn so much. And you, know, you do that for a few dozen customers and you start to see patterns and you start to see themes. And depending on how many different customer segments a given website targets, you might do even more than that but even still, it doesn't take that long, you know, yeah. a week, two weeks, you know, in that time alone, you can learn what many of those issues are. You're, you're observing people and then you're having the opportunity to ask questions. You know, if all of a sudden someone's using a page and all of a sudden they get that look on their face, like they're confused or whatever, you say, oh, what are you thinking right now? And they say, I'm thinking I can't figure out what the next step is. Well, mm-hmm. what were you expecting to see? Well, I figured there'd be like a next button, but I, I don't see one. Okay. Well, and of course, there might be a next button right there yeah. in front of their nose, you know, but maybe it that's doesn't say next. Color. Maybe it says continue, right? And for whatever reason, that's not what they're looking for. So, and if a bunch of people are saying that, maybe you should relabel the button, you know? And as simple and obvious as something like that is, it's shocking how often we find problems that are, are that simple. And of course, not all problems are that simple to solve, yeah. but very often that kind of low hanging fruit. Can you imagine rewording a button and getting, you know, an extra, $600,000 a week in sales. I mean, we've seen things like that repeatedly, of course, assuming the site has very, very high volume. So yeah, it's really, you know, customer research just is many companies do some forms of customer research, of course, but my experience, it's way, way underutilized. And then it's also about how you do the research. And so we've tried to be very detailed in the book and in the supplemental materials, suggesting some of the key things to do to make sure you're getting really getting the insight and you're getting the most accurate. You know, if you take a customer and you say, Hey, take a look at this website and tell me how you think we should improve it. You're not going to get a good information. You have to approach it in the right way. Hey there. Are you enjoying the show so far? Well, imagine your company's advertising placed right in this very spot during a future interview with another elite e-commerce mind. Imagine your messaging and logo directly connected to the industry's most prominent innovators and thought leaders distributed across every major podcast platform and social network. Yeah, well, it's time to stop imagining. Learn how you can partner with Upnext in Commerce and sponsor this very show. Reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org and let's have a conversation. So what things didn't make it into the book that you wish made it in? What's not in the supplemental material is not in the book. And you're like, man, knowing what I know now in 2021, I wish we would have had this in there. One is I've done since then analysis on this idea of customer love. Mm-hmm. And come up and shown a bunch of examples. We have actually a scale of customer love from um, love down, was sort, sort of like what's the range from it starts with love, then it goes down to resonant, mm-hmm. then it goes down to relevant, then it goes down to irrelevant and ultimately um, non existent. Mm-hmm. And so, this idea that customer companies exist in terms of the mind of any one customer at any time along this continuum. In subsequent to that, we, we talked about um, some 
case studies that show, let's look at Apple, let's look at Disney, but let's look at some companies at each level. Let's look at companies that are resident, like Verizon, for example. Great brand. A lot of people like them. They love them. Probably not quite, you know, exactly. And then you go down from one from there, you know, maybe now you're at, you know, Citibank and then you go down another one and maybe you're at Radio Shack. So um, looking at them and then looking at their financial performance and really being able to show how this correlates. And then the other thing that isn't in the book that probably should have been is answering the questions. How do you know what level you're at? And we actually have different tools we use, but one of them is a very simple test. We ask one simple question. And based on the answer to that question, we're able to say whether it's a brand that you love or that's only resonant or that's relevant or that's irrelevant or non-existent. And the question is very simple. If this brand disappeared tomorrow, how would you feel? How would you feel, Stephanie, if Apple disappeared tomorrow? Oh, that's a good question. I'd be super sad because I own Apple everything. (laughs) Yeah. So if you'd be super sad, if you'd be like distraught, if you'd be like, like really emotional, then that's a brand you love. That's a brand you love. That's the sign of love. But if you say, well, you know, I'd I'd be kind of bummed, you know, like I'd be like, darn, you know. (laughs) Oh, sugar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, then that's a brand that's resonant for you. It's you care about it. I mean, you don't care about it like that much, but like you're like, oh, rats, you know, I'm really that's a disappointment, you know. And then the next level down, if you're like, well, I need to, to know that, you know, I have no emotional response, but thank you for telling me that that brand is gone because gosh, you know, I usually get my gas from Chevron and I guess if they're gone, I'm going to have to go to British Petroleum. So thank you. Mental note, you know, at least it mattered to you. It affected you, Mm -hmm. but not in a way that you're emotional about. That's what we call a relevant brand. It matters, but you don't have an emotional connection. And then below that, if it's like, you're like, who's gone? Who are they? I didn't even know they were still around. Yeah. Well, then now you're down in the sort of, you know, irrelevant type type range. So, and we do surveys like that all the time to try to understand what, which other brands that really people do love Because a key question is, well, what are those brands doing? How are they inspiring love? And one thing that is in the book then is we we showed the pyramid of how do you inspire love? What are the three things you need to do to get your customers to have that feeling of love? And so what are the things to do? Because I'm thinking about a brand like that's like car insurance. I, Mm -hmm. you know, whoever's cheapest, don't care. Travelers, Geico, whatever it takes, I'll just go with whoever. Like I don't feel myself ever um, feeling loving towards those kinds of brands doesn't really matter what they do. So how would a brand like that go about inspiring love when you're compared to someone like Apple, you know? Right, right. So uh, I'll answer your question and and it's really not just for car rental, uh, sorry, car insurance, but for all brands. And I'll tell you the formula, which is a pretty straightforward formula. But before that, I want to tell you this. Uh, I've worked with a number of auto insurance companies over the years, including Allstate, um, Farmers, Mercury, a little bit with State Farm, CNA, so a lot. Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of research over the years with customers of car insurance. And I will tell you this, there are without doubt people who love their car insurance companies. Oh, I realize it's not you. And and I'll be honest, it's not me. It's not me either. But I have been in customer research sessions and I have interviewed people who they are with the same car insurance company that their parents used Mm -hmm. and they will never switch no matter what. They are committed why? for life. Like, why exactly are they so why. committed? Right, exactly why. So let's talk about why, but let me talk about it in the context of the, the, the recipe. So how do you get someone, how do you get a customer, how do you inspire a customer to love a brand? Three, three levels. The bottom of the pyramid is to consistently meet their needs. And that is not enough to inspire love, but it is required. 
right? Whatever your area of, if, whether you're delivering pizza or whether you're a place that they buy power tools or you're a hotel or whatever it is, what, the, what are their, their needs? You are consistently meeting those needs. That's your base. Then the next level up is to periodically delight the customer. Mm-hmm. Do something above and beyond what you have to do and what you're expecting. And then the top level, and that, that will get you farther up that continuum, but probably not to love. In order to love a brand, you have to feel that they stand for something. They have a, a kind of a value system that you, you reflect, that you see in yourself, a value system that you resonate with. In fact, to that last point, that's why we see some brands now that have taken a strong political stand. And by the way, a value doesn't have to be political, but like when Nike did the thing with Colin Kaepernick and demonstrated their support for Black Lives Matter, that had a massively positive impact on their standing in the market and their share price and their sales because they were taking a stand for something that a lot of people believed in. Mm-hmm. And even though that also meant that they were taking a stand that some people believed the opposite and said, I'll never buy another Nike shoe in my life. And that did happen. And there are some people who won't buy Nike shoes because of that. The net impact was enormously positive because the love that they inspired meant so much more business than the people that they that, that, that turned away from them. And you can say the same, see the same thing on the opposite end of the political spectrum. There's a Chick-fil-A, not, not too far from my house. And Chick-fil-A, of course, has taken strong stands on extremely conservative right-wing social values. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, there's police at that Chick-fil-A every day to manage the drive-through lane oh, because yeah. there are so many people who want to buy Chick-fil-A sandwiches. And I have been told, I think I might've had one like years and years ago, but mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not going to Chick-fil-A for the same kind of reasons. But I don't think there's anything that special about what Chick-fil-A sells. Mm-hmm. And I think part of the reason of their popularity is because people like what they stand for. And you could say the same thing on the right of someone like a Hobby Lobby or, or others. So, and, and, and by the way, I'll just close this answer uh, with one thought, which is why, why, why do these three things together create such an emotional reaction? And the answer is because they push the three levers, the three emotional levers that really inspire love. And what are they? When you demonstrate, when you consistently meet someone's needs, you're demonstrating to them that you understand them because you can't meet the needs if you don't understand. So that when someone's always there for me, I'm like, they get me, they understand what I need. Mm -hmm. They understand I want that coffee hot when I get it, or they understand that I need whatever it is. When you delight someone, when you go above and beyond periodically, but you demonstrate another emotional thing, you demonstrate they care about me. They didn't have to do this extra thing, right? I was going to give them my money anyway. And they went and they did this extra thing. And that demonstrates that they care about me. You know, so many brands, they're constantly saying to their customers, you know, thank, for, thank you for your business, you know, that kind of stuff. And man, that just goes right past people, right? Like how often do you believe when you get a bill from your utility company at the bottom, it says, we appreciate you as a customer. And I'm like, right? yeah, okay. Yeah. Well that's, done. that's printed on the form, right? Come on. Yeah. How stupid are we, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Might as well not bother. I mean, it doesn't hurt anything, but like, come on, people are, aren't, people are very cynical. But when you make a genuine gesture that they knew took, took money, took effort, that demonstrates, you know, when, a, when, a, when, a, when someone at, at Zappos Shoes goes out of their way to help you with something, or I was at an Avis rental car today, yesterday, uh, and I observed somebody helping someone on the phone because they had a problem with the car for like, I was like for 15 or 20 minutes and they were, they were clearly doing everything they could, way mm-hmm. above and beyond what you would expect. When you, when you get that, that demonstrates to someone that, that not by telling, but by showing uh, that they ca- you care about them. 
And then the third level, when you express values that they resonate with, that makes someone feel that they are like me. Mm-hmm. There's a humanity there, not just a business, and that they share something about my belief or my values about the world. And when you combine those things together, and by the way, many companies don't do this. You know, many people, if you said, if we said, what does Ben and Jerry stand for? What does Whole Foods stand for? What does Apple stand for? I think most people would say something that it stood for. But if someone said, what is, what was the auto insurance company that you were talking about? Travelers. Travelers. What does Travelers stand for? What does Geico stand? Now, you know, you could say, well, Geico stands for saving you 15%, you know, but, but that's not a value, right? I mean, it might be a value in the sense of a discount, but it's not a, it's not a human value, right? There's nothing wrong with saving people 15%, but it's not the kind of value that Nike stands for or the kind of value that Apple stands for of, you know, we believe in you, we believe in unlocking your personal creative freedom and capabilities. Mm-hmm. What does Citibank stand for? There's so many, bro. What does United Airlines stand for? And that's a great example. And by the way, I like United Airlines. I fly them all the time. Fly the friendly skies. You know, does anyone believe that United Airlines is the friendly skies? You know, it's just words. I believe it. But I mean, I think that just shows that I don't think brands are able to tell their stories very well in a way that connects. I mean, a pl- like a political stance, I think that's an easy thing to jump on because it's like newsjacking. Something's going on. I'm going to take a stance on it. I think that's easy. Mm-hmm. But to actually tell your story without an event going on to try and get news around it, I mean, that I still think is hard for large brands. I was just reading um, Warren Buffett's shareholder letter. I don't know if you also read that for fun like me. Maybe no, now you're like, nah, but I probably should. <laughs> it's great. I mean, he was going through, you know, the companies that they acquired and why he's going to bet big on America and he'll never, you know, bet against it again. And he went through the backstory of these companies that he acquired. I think Geico was one of them. And it was just, very interesting to see like how he could storytell better for these very, very large companies and going through like why he even was interested in investing in them in the first place. I'm like, that is what needs to be told. That startup story. Yes, they're a huge brand now, but like, how did they get there? And how do you instill that message, you know, around your company without just having to newsjack or jump on politics? Right, right. Well, and you know, actually it's, it's funny because you asked about things that weren't in the book. And one of the other things that's not in the book, but um, I did a live cast on subsequent is, is the answer to that very question. Um, you know, how do you figure out, well, actually there's sort of two questions. One is how do you figure out what your brand really stands for? Because, mm-hmm. you know, some brands were, were birthed standing for something, you know, Tom's shoes or something yeah. like that. And so the people that were attracted to that brand, both as customers, but also as employees, they understood the, um, they understood what the, the brand was about. So you wind up with a bunch of people at that brand who believe in that mission because that's what it was when they came. Mm-hmm. But when you start with a company that, that doesn't have that, then the question becomes, okay, so how do, you, how do you achieve it? How do you come up with what it is? How do you figure that out? That's a challenge. And, and to your question, then how do you express that? How do you get the world like, you know, newsjacking is one way or taking a stand on a political issue. But so anyway, so I did another one on what I call the seven P's, which are just seven different ways. You don't have to do all seven, but you probably want to do more than one of how you take the value that you're about, whether it's, you know, wholesome food like Whole Foods or whether it's personal creative tools that unleash your creative potential or what have you like Apple. And how do you actually get that to be something real in the world that people believe in and, real, and really see that you are standing for those values? And, and one of those P's is positioning, which means basically telling people, right? Mm-hmm. Which is what a lot of brands do. This is what we stand for. But if you only do that, what, what I always say is positioning serves only one purpose, which is 
to create cynicism, to create doubt, Mm -hmm. which is good. It's good to do that because if you tell people what you stand for, they're going to not believe you. And then they're going to look for evidence. And if you have the other P's or some of the other P's and the evidence is there, and then they start to look for the evidence, then they'll start to see that it's true. Brands that are really strong at standing for something don't even need positioning necessarily because people experience it and they know what it is. But if you position, you better make sure that you've got some of the other things because you're going to create doubt from your positioning. People are going to, if they're interested, test your positioning to see whether it's really true in their experience. And if it is, then you're, then you're great. Then you've used the positioning as a lens to get them to evaluate whether it's really true or if it's BS. But of course, if it's not really true, you've accomplished the negative thing, which is you've lied to them and you've allowed them to spend their waste, their time and energy proving that you've lied to them. And now, of course, no doubt, unless your positioning is that you're a lying company, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it's, it's harmful rather than helpful. That makes sense. So this kind of takes it way back to earlier in the interview, but a lot of brands right now I see focusing on like, here's my mission and the company's starting around like, you know, the social impact or causes or things like that. And a question that I've, you know, talked with quite a few companies about is like, how do you balance the mission behind the company, but then also the product value? I mean, you mentioned that so like one of the big themes was that customers would come to a company's website and not know if it could help them right away. And it feels like that's a newer thing where, you know, every new DDC company right now has some kind of mission. And I do see some of them struggling with like, do you put it on your front page? Do you sell with your mission? Do you sell with your product? Like, how do you think about that? So what are your thoughts on, you know, having a good balance there while not making the customer journey, you know, get harder? I think it depends who you're selling to. I think it goes back to what I said about understanding your customer. I know, um, especially with millennials and younger, we definitely see something that we generally don't see with older customers, which is a willingness to actually make a choice and spend money for, for a social reason mm-hmm. because of some sort of, you know, charitable connection or something like that. Usually with older consumers, they like it. Like we'll, we'll do tests like this. We'll say, you know, this brand uh, gives 10% of the money to the American Red Cross and this brand doesn't. How do you feel about the fact that this brand gives the money? And people say, oh, I'm all for it. I think it's wonderful that they do that. And we say, okay, great. This brand's product costs $12. And this other brand that doesn't give the money, their product costs $11. Which one are you going to buy? And very often they're like, Take the $11 one. You know? yeah. it's, like, it's like they like it, but they're not really willing to spend more for it. Whereas mm-hmm. uh, with younger um, consumers, we find increasingly they say, oh, no, I, I spend another dollar for the company that, that gives the money to the cause that I believe in. So I think part of it's understanding who you're communicating to. And but also, I think part of it's understanding that building a relationship is about a number of different things. And you don't start a relationship usually by focusing on your values. Mm -hmm. I mean, if I said, hey, there's this restaurant that gives 50% of all the money to Greenpeace. Do you want to have dinner there? If it's good food. Right. And you might want to know, well, like what kind of food is it? You know, like, is it Chinese? (laughs) Like, you know, like, like it's not enough, right? You kind of want to start with, well, what's the value proposition for me? It's like what I said earlier, people care first and foremost about themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think there may be exceptions to this rule, but I think by and large, you have to do a good job first of being crystal clear about, it's like that pyramid I talked about, right? You can't jump to the top of the pyramid. You got to start by consistently meeting their needs and demonstrate that you understand them. And that at a very basic level, you can deliver what it is that they need. 
And then you can go to delighting and then you can focus on values. So I think the answer is it's probably not your first message. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's probably not the thing that's going to attract them to. But what's going to happen is they're going to be attracted initially by what's in it for them. And then you can start to build a relationship and help them understand you know, most people didn't buy their first carton of Ben and Jerry's because they were protecting, you know, grassland in Vermont or whatever environmental stuff. They, they, it looked good. They heard, oh, chunky monkey. It's that's good stuff, you know, unless you're on a diet. But, but then they might've fallen in love with the brand over time because they realized that not only is that bottom of the pyramid, not only are they consistently meeting my needs really well, but that they're also doing things that uh, resonate with my values. And then that keeps me coming back again and again. It makes me more loyal and less likely to jump to the next brand of ice cream that has something that sounds Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. So get them in the door with good products, showcase your value. And then, you know, you could probably upsell in a way once someone knows like this is a good product. And now maybe I am willing to spend that extra dollar now that I've already had a good experience with them versus trying to do it the other way around. Yeah. Or be less likely to switch uh, or be willing Mm -hmm. to, yes, try new products from that same brand, et cetera. Cool. So the last thing I wanted to kind of touch on was content strategy. I saw you working with Aeropostale and American Girl around, you know, getting these brands to start creating content, making it more organic, getting customers to create their own viral content. How do you think about brands should be approaching their content strategy right now? Yeah, well, you know, in this day and age, everybody's a content creator. And as you look at the, you know, the ages of your customers, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm a content creator and I'm over 50. Uh, but if you, as you go down in age, it becomes, you know, everybody, my mm-hmm. kids are all creating all kinds of content all the time on obviously TikTok and Instagram and everywhere. You know, I think, first of all, it's, it's easier than ever. I think that um, you, one of the best ways to inspire people to create content is to give them a platform. Every, what every content creator cares most about is what likes, you know, whatever, whatever it is on the given platform, right? Subscribers, followers, likes, all this kind of stuff. So that ego. Strong. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there are many strategies, of course, to inspire people to create UGC around your brand. But I think that the, the number one strategy is to say, okay, how can I give someone a sense that if you create something, you're going to get my platform. You, you know, obviously, if you're a brand, you want to make sure you have a good size platform, which mm-hmm. means very simply how many people you can reach, how many followers, et cetera, you have. And then if you can help someone see that by creating content around your brand, that's going to get that content more exposure than if they just create content and post it on their own personal Instagram account or whatnot. Um, Which then is that's the same valuable. thing. And then of course, for me, that's the same thing that we've kind of talked about this whole time. A hundred percent. And in this case, the customer is, they may be your customer in the traditional sense. They may be buying your product, but they may not even buy your product. But it's, again, it's like what I said about human behavior. You want to influence people to create content about you online. Great. You have to make sure you understand those people and understand what drives them. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, there, there are going to be some different personas, right? To get my daughter to create content is takes one thing to get someone who's already a YouTuber with 15 million followers. Now it's something different. Like it's called probably going to an influencer platform and writing them a check. Mm-hmm. And that can be a very viable and smart strategy to do as well. If you do it correctly and you pick the right influencers and you make sure that it's organically integrated into their content and not feeling like something they've just slapped on, you know, like, like an ad, but that can be a very powerful marketing tool as well. So that's what they want. My daughter, they don't need your platform because they have an even bigger platform, probably depending on, I mean, if your platform is big enough, if you're Coca-Cola, maybe you even have a bigger platform than them, in which case maybe the influencer is willing to do it for less or for free. But um, anyway, so I think that's, those are, but that's, it all comes down to that. Anytime you want to motivate someone to do anything, you want to make sure you understand what do they care about? What are they trying to accomplish? That's right. 
Cool. Well, let's jump over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have 30 seconds or less to answer. Are you okay. ready? I'm ready. All right. First one, what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? The um, elimination of uh, third-party cookies. Okay. Expand a little bit more on, because I've had another well, guest say it doesn't matter and we have solved that and it's nothing to worry about. So- Okay. Well, I'll have to watch that episode because I would love that to be true. <laughs> but um, essentially what's happening is between things that Apple's doing and things that Google are doing, Google's doing, and frankly, things that may also happen from a legislation perspective, mm -hmm. the ability to cookie somebody on one site and display ads to them on a different site is being, the tech, is being no longer permitted or they're rolling out changes, which will mean that, you know, if, if you're familiar with going on Overstock and looking at a sofa and then that sofa is on every site you see around the whole internet, yep. they're not going to be do, able to do that anymore. And, you know, it, it has the biggest impact on smaller or medium-sized e-commerce players, you know, because that's a key, that's a key strategy. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's going to have a huge impact and require everyone to come up with different ways of uh, attracting, um, attracting buyers. I think it's going to have a huge impact. Yeah. When does that go into place again? Well, some of it's already that. in place, you know, certain browsers okay. are already blocking third-party cookies and other mm -hmm. bots, but I think it's, we're already in the middle of a transition. Okay. Got it. On to a happier subject then. Mm -hmm. What's up next on your Netflix queue? Ah, I think I want to watch this show about QAnon um, that I think just okay. started. Is that, I think it's Netflix or if not, it's one of the other services. One of them. All about how this QAnon thing got started and how so many people were hypnotized into being crazy. Yeah. Interesting. Tell me how it is. What one thing do you not understand today that you wish you did? Um, women. <laughs> you think you're and the why person? they do what they do. Oh my gosh. That's <laughs> I've got great. two teenage that's daughters a... and a wife and man, I, I don't understand a single thing about why they do what they do. Oh, that's great. I mean, I don't even understand myself sometimes. So that's a valid, valid answer. What's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? I guess have my children. I've got five children. Five. Wow. That's great. That's a good answer. Yeah. What's the last e-commerce purchase you made that you maybe would not have made pre-COVID? Well, I have been buying more um, gear for, you know, at home uh, stuff like we're doing now, because I used to do that all at our offices in Manhattan where we had more of like a studio. So mm -hmm. um, I don't know, very last one, but a lot more lights and microphone stands and like all this kind of a side monitor, like an extra small monitor, like I've got over here to show me the, the slides if I'm talking about things. So I've been buying a lot more like gadgets and gasmos. Did I say that? Yeah. Gadgets and gizmos. <laughs> Whatever you say works <laughs> to make for it me. easier to turn my office into a kind of a studio for all the content that we produce. Very cool. All right. And then the last one, if you were to have a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Ah, well, I do have a podcast. Oh, well, it, then what is it about? It's, it's called Winning Digital Customers. And it is about how you most effectively win as a brand in an age where so many of your customers are living with digital at the center of, our, of their lifestyle. And the first guest on my podcast was uh, a great friend and client of mine, Michelle McKenna, who's the SVP and Chief Information Officer of the National Football Oh, nice. I saw she wrote, didn't she write a forward in your book? She did. Or? She also wrote that. Well, okay. that's kind of why we, we kicked off the podcast, which kind of connects to the book, same name. Mm -hmm. uh, and she also was kind enough to, uh, to do that. And uh, she's awesome and has driven a lot of innovation and transformation at the NFL. Everything from the new way they do instant replays to stuff that supports player health and safety to 
drones at Super Bowls and sensors on players, uh, um, you know, shoulder pads and helmets and the ball so they can track with motion capture, everything that happens in the game. So many cool things. And so she's always got great things to talk about. And also a lot of stuff she can't talk about. (laughs) Yeah. We need to bring her on our IT Visionaries podcast, which Hillary also produces. So we need to get her on there, Hillary. She is definitely an IT Visionary. Yeah. We'll have to bring her on. Cool. Howard, thanks so much for joining the show. It was a pleasure chatting. Where can people find out more about you and your new book? Sure. Uh, Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, If they want to learn about the book, uh, there's a website for the book, which is at winningdigitalcustomers.com, just like all one word. And in fact, if you go there, you can also download the first chapter of the book for free as a PDF if you want to just get started on it. Obviously, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, you know, Apple Books, all those types of places and bookstores possibly near you if you go to bookstores. (laughs) And uh, as well, if you want to learn more about me, I'm on social media. I publish a lot on LinkedIn and other places. You can find me by my name, Howard Tierski. And my company is from the Digital Transformation Agency. And we are at from.digital. Amazing. Thank you so much, Howard. Thank you for having me. It's been a it's been a blast. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnext in commerce. Up next in commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>